Welcome to Legville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Legville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love, and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Legville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today we're going to be talking again with Adam Gopnik, the writer for The New Yorker and uh, author of numerous books, uh, most recently, um, A Thousand Small Sanities, which we had a wonderful conversation about that book about a month, month and a half ago, something like that. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the book that he wrote previous to that, uh, which is At the Stranger's Gate, which is an absolutely delightful memoir. I I loved A Thousand Small Sanities. I thought it was a fantastic book, um, but... This book at the Stranger's Gate is is something different. I mean, it's just it's like a dart through the heart. It's so it's so 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 powerful. And uh, thank you for writing this, Adam, and, and welcome again to the podcast. Well, thank you, John. That you can imagine how much that warms an author's heart to hear. We Eddie, we like all of our books, I suppose, but it, and it, for the most obvious reasons. At the Stranger's Gate was one that was particularly dear to my heart. It's the account, as you know, having read it, of leaving Montreal for New York when my then girlfriend, now wife of many years, Martha, and I left to um, to come here. I'm speaking to you from New York, and I poured as much of myself into it as I possibly could, uh, not just in the sense of pouring in, you know, memory and anecdote and uh, burnished nostalgia for a time now long gone. But also, um, I hope, something about uh, the wellsprings of my own uh, imagination and I hope of other people's ambition. I wanted to write about ambition and romantic sexuality and married sexuality and lots of things that you're not supposed to write about. I mean, this is not a book that's, you know, dense with um, uh, what do they call it now in the academy? Transgression. But for me, (laughs) it was a transgressive book. In as much as the things you're not, there are other things you're not supposed to write about apart from uh, taboo subjects, or maybe a better way of putting that is that there are some taboo subjects that we don't think of as taboo. Long married love, particularly long married sex, is one of them. Uh, ambition, in lots of ways, is a is a taboo subject. You know, if you confess to, uh, you know, a life spent 
uh, snorting up heroin. It's or having like you know group sex and you know having like you can you can talk about you can ask. Uh, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, I've I've noticed this many times. You can be at a dinner party. And you know the person who just regales the the table with stories of, you know, ecstasy fueled like orgies and you know rehab sessions and all this stuff. Ask them about their tax return, or ask yeah. ask them about um, about envy and about ambition and about like who they wanted to be better than and and times that. Don't don't tell me about times that you had a great boner and you were with like four people. Tell me about times that you were really petty because you wanted to look good and you want and they will just turn bright as red as a Victorian middle class, you know, like as if you just asked them, you know, something sexual. They suddenly, you know, I mean, every age has its prudishness and they almost never see it as prudishness. No, that's well, that's extremely aphoristically said, I say, as one who savors a good aphorism. It's very true. And we we are surrounded by prudishness and puritanism, not so much about sexual matters, as we've been saying. You can easily write a memoir of anal sex and um, and cheerfully go to dinner. Uh, it's much harder to write uh, a novel about um, long married sex or about ambition, as you say. You know, there there's a literature of ambition, obviously, in 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 American literature more perhaps than in Canadian literature, and you think of sort of um, uh, famous instances like um, Scott Fitzgerald's early stories or Norman Pedoritz's once notorious book um, "Making It," which practically ended Norman Pedoritz's literary career. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what you. And I love what you say. Like, I think it's pretty early on. It's probably in chapter chapter one where you talk about like <laughs> if, if a guy t- if you talk about unrequited love or. Or like right. a love lost, you know, the whole whole world like sighs with you. But if you talk about how much you love your wife of many years, people immediately look askance. And I immediately thought of my favorite living aphorist, uh, who's actually a fellow New Yorker um, like you, Aaron Haspel. He, sure. has, he has this wonderful aphorism where he says, when a man says publicly that he loves his wife, he means that he doesn't like her. <laughs> <laughs> That's very and, good. So, and so, like this is, you know, you think of Bill Clinton and lots of people, but it's, uh, yeah, no, I you, would, you, Aldrin, I would, I would edit it to improve it only. Maybe, maybe it ought to be. It means that he no longer likes her. Ooh, that actually, that's actually an improvement. That's, uh, that's really good. You know, I, I saw your, um, I, I saw your friend Malcolm Gladwell last night. He was here in Montreal. Was he really? At, uh, yeah, at St James United Church. He was, right. He's, he's, uh, get promoting his his new book talking to strangers and uh, he he was fantastic i mean he was uh he's you know i'm i'm surprised it's the first time i've seen him speak live i've heard him in you know in interviews and things like that and but you can never tell how much those things are canned you know like how much they're rehearsed but you know here was a situation where he was getting interviewed by uh, a an interviewer who was clearly really off her game. I, you know, she she hadn't read the whole book, and she made that embarrassingly obvious a couple of times because she asked him questions about things that were mentioned two or three times in the book, and uh, she was, you know, she she's normally I, I I know this she's actually normally a really great interviewer, but she was really off her game last night. Um, but he was able to he was able to roll with the punches. And he was so, 
just almost like a performance artist. Like he was really good at just like, he was great, you know, but he said this one thing and I immediately thought of at the stranger's gate, your book. And he said, um, you know, I've realized that uh, my main source for research right now is memoirs, but they're memoirs of a certain kind. He said, uh, I've realized that, you know, there's there's basically like, um, he, he said, he sort of imagined where he's the son of a mathematician, so everything is math in his mind to some extent. But he said, if you imagine that there's like an X and Y axis, and he said like on one far end of the graph up here, you know, in the, in the far left quadrant, um, there is your neighbor who has had an incredibly boring life and doesn't really have very interesting stories but is totally unconstrained. And so we'll tell you everything, but the everything is not very interesting. And then he said at the other end of the graph, you know, way down in the, the far left uh, bottom court quadrant, there are like really famous, um, you know, politicians or, you know, people who are, have, have led incredibly interesting lives, but they're highly constrained. So their, their memoirs are really boring because they go through numerous edits and they, they can't really tell you any of the interesting stories. Right. And he said, but the absolute most amazing, amazing memoirs are people in this kind of middle region in the middle, like where they are, have lived very interesting lives but they were not so famous that they're highly constrained. Mm-hmm. And he said, like, those memoirs are where you find all the gold. Like, you find anecdotes where you're just like, oh, my God, I can't believe this made it into print. And he said, you know, the thing is, there's so many of them out there. There's dozens, you know, published every year. It's just nobody reads them. And then mm-hmm. he gave he gave a couple of examples of, like, things that he's found in People who were not the former director of the CIA, but a kind of high but still middling person within the organization. And that person comes out with a memoir, and it's filled with some of the most explosive, amazing stuff. And your memoir fits into that. It's totally, it's really unconstrained, but you actually have known all of these like really famous, like interesting, fabulous people. Like for instance, your your chapter on GQ, I I cannot believe yes. you're not being I cannot believe you're not being sued for you know forget your inky blue suit for everything you own like for writing yeah. that I mean that's what a devastating portrayal of the fashion magazine you know racket. Well, it's funny. One of the truths that you learn in in what for me now unfortunately is a long life of writing is that you can never anticipate people's responses to anything you write. So things that you imagine are um, a bear hug, they perceive as a betrayal, and things that you worry might be perceived as a betrayal, they perceive as a bear hug, and they and love it. So I did, you know, I worked at GQ magazine, as I detail in the book. First is, <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> as the grooming editor, and then, and then as the literary editor, a concept that's still startles people being the literary editor of GQ. It's like being the poetry editor of TV guide. But I was, <laughs> I was for two wonderful years, two wonderful and productive years. And, um, and I wrote a lot about that, the, that world and the, the people within it. And, um, 
I got a call from one of the young art directors who'd been there then, a, a, a man named Fabian Barron, who has since gone on to become an extremely famous art director. And he was so delighted to read it and to reconnect. And I actually wrote the text for a retrospective of his work in graphics and design. So I, the one thing I will say, and it, you know, it's, it's perhaps a, an indictment, if not an indictment, then at least a, a criticism one could make of my, my, of this book or my stuff is that I try as hard as I can not to let satire get too edged with malice. Um, malice in literature has an, is odd personal biliousness. It seems to me, you know, going, going out after somebody, a kind of rancor is usually deadly. Nobody, it, it doesn't last at all. Well, yeah, uh, it doesn't, doesn't look nice. It never, no. yeah. Doesn't age well. Think, doesn't look nice. no, on the other hand, sort of general malice, a willingness to say the unsayable and to be uh, uh, have a, a sharp and uh, satiric eye, that does tend to age well. We enjoy writing of that kind. So there's a fine line between satiric edge and malicious purpose that you try and respect in all this. In any case, the truth about the GQ um, period in my irv, um and I hope this comes through in the book because I was incredibly happy to be doing that job. Well, I that, that completely comes through. That completely comes through. And you, I, I didn't sense any kind of Tom, you know, sort of Wolfian nastiness. That it was, it came, it comes through that you actually really sort of drank the Kool Aid and had a great time, and that it was like it was a lot I, of fun, and you kind of really got into it. Well, I, be a writer, and I had gotten waylaid for reasons good and bad which i detail a bit in the in the in the story in the book uh waylaid into actually doing art history the reason the ostensible reason for our being able to go to new york was that i had a fellowship to study art history graduate school um but that was not the reason we wanted to go to new york but then once having gone to new york to study art history i met a, uh, a couple of amazing teachers one in particular kirk varnado who doesn't figure as large in this book as he might, because he, I wrote a long essay about him called uh, Last of the Metrozoids in the previous book, Through the Children's Gate, which confusingly takes place later. Through the Children's Gate, which I published in about 2006, is actually an account of the I 2000s. haven't read that. I, I'm going to get that tonight. I'm going to get that after I, after we finish this interview. Because in one of my favorite parts of the book was your stuff about Dick. And so if there's right. something that's of the of a comparable, comparable kind, I want I want to read more of that. So. There's stuff about about this great teacher, Kirk Varner, there's a whole chapter about him, and he died tragically of cancer, and uh, I, I hesitate to use the word heroically. I, you know, I always hate that language of um, struggle when it comes to illness, because illnesses you know, get us, and it doesn't matter how we struggle with them. They'll have their own, uh, their own prognosis and burn their own way past our, our best will. But in any case, um, I was studying with Kirk Varner, though, was a, a unique uh, privilege and inspiration. And, you know, once in a lifetime, you get a teacher who totally uh, sets your mind afire. And he did that. But in any case, I didn't want to be in graduate school. And so going to GQ for me was a chance to break out of the narrow strictures and constraints of graduate school and be in what felt like the real world. And though in retrospect, it was a real world dominated by so many absurdities by learning how to write about linen shirts and uh, you know, finding the right 27 characters for this month's moisturizer, um, being in touch with that, those kinds of, 
uh, commercial exigencies, far from feeling shaming or diminishing, felt liberating. It felt that you were actually at the heart of things. You're going to a building on Madison Avenue and 43rd Street and taking part in a what was then a thriving, even a superabundant world of uh, of energy and uh, uh, privilege. Uh, it's one of the reasons I felt John, that I was ready to write this book a couple of years ago when it when it came out. I'd had it in mind for a long time. Is that it seemed to me that the that the world had changed so dramatically since the 1980s. You know how that is. Yeah. Uh, life. I'll forgive this somewhat recherche reference, but it is one you will you will know. You know Thomas Kuhn's on um, the structure of scientific revolutions. Sure. Right? That's, yeah. Yep. Right. I've always thought that book says scientific revolutions don't happen in slow increments as more and more evidence accrues about particular problems. He says they happen in these giant paradigm shifts in which suddenly in the space of two or three years, what everyone believed before looks ridiculous. And now everyone believes a whole new set of things. You have a new paradigm. And the paradigm happens predominantly not because – people are evangelized and are converted to the new ways. It's because the old people die or retire. And the new people who came into the system without any deep investment in the old system chose the new ideas because those are the ones that seemed more sort of attractive and plausible to them. And it's not as if people get converted en masse. It's that the, you know, the previous generation just dies, you know, they, they're gone. (laughs) Arcanism takes over, um, the academy in Britain because uh, everybody dies out. The old non-Darwinians die out. Now, that's a picture that's often been, as you know, um, uh, argued over and refuted. You know, remember, remember the famous thing that, uh, what was his name? Uh, uh, Smolian? I'm going to forget his name. But the idea that, well, no, it wasn't that the old anti-Darwinians died out. It was that the younger brothers, the younger brothers, the younger siblings came in and they were all more pro-Darwinian because they had a a rebellious nature, that book, Born to Rebel. In any case, the point I was going to make is, however uh, well or ill that picture of paradigm shifts fits um, uh, the sciences, it absolutely fits literary culture of all kinds. And you know, if you just think about popular music, uh, it's astonishing to think that the you know they just re-released um, the Beatles' Abbey Road for the 50th anniversary, and it was an event. Right. People are still very familiar with and intrigued by a record album that's 50 years old. If you went back to 1969, when Abbey Road was released and you thought about a work of popular music that had come out in 1919, you'd be living in the archival past. Nobody <laughs> yeah. was really interested in anything that had happened in popular music in 1919. Now, there was the young Louis Armstrong and Irving Berlin was writing his first songs, but those were very specialized interests, even if they had held over um, to some degree into the 1960s. Um, To make this extremely long and circuitous point a little more punchy, um, I realized that we had passed through a a paradigm shift in just in the last four or five years. Coronavirus is a real bitch, eh? That's what I keep telling my wife. (laughs) (laughs) A real blessing to to be the living vector of an epidemic. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, what I was going to say is, is suddenly the 1980s, which had just seemed like the day before yesterday in, say, the year 1999 or in the year, even in the year 2005, suddenly it was really gone. If you tried to explain to people 
the way we lived in the 1980s, it would seem in some ways as remote as, excuse me, as the 1880s. Um, and yeah. one of the markers in, in lots of ways, the most obvious being no internet, no internet of any kind. If, if you wanted to get your stuff posted, so to speak, you had to find a vehicle, a newspaper or a magazine that would do it. And another way in which the world has changed is that magazines like the New Yorker, but also like GQ were culturally central then. In oh, a way it was, you know, it was amazing. Like I, I was, you know, I was laughing out loud in your chapter in GQ because I was a teenager. I was a hormonal, like testosterone <laughs> pump teenager when you were writing for GQ. My friends and I would buy GQ and it was like its opinions on how you should shave or how, you know, how you should, you know, like how you should dress or how you should behave on a date. We received this like it was a fucking papal bull. Like we just, this was like truth coming from on a high. And to hear from you in your memoir, I, I sent my, you know, old friends like chunks of your, you know, chunks of your, your, that chapter. And just, I'm like, you're going to fucking die laughing when you read this. I said, you remember that magazine we used to like treat like the, the Bible and we would read it. I said, so check it out. It was run by a bunch of like sort of elegant gay men and people who were just pulling the shit out of their asses. Like they were just making it up on the fly. It was this gra graduate student who was kind of sloppy. And he, immigrant on the bank. Montreal. Yeah, and, just, no, and, I, and he would bring the he would bring the stuff home like illegally and get his wife to sort of you know say what was what he should comment on the different things and then he would go back and write it. And, they, and is this so funny? Else. It's like the strictures, you know. I would just you know sit there and make up these these you know absolutely totalitarian ukazis and insistences, you know. Never only shave in the shower while you actually have the steam. <laughs> I, 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 I shave in the shower to this very day because of that fucking you know, article you wrote. <laughs> I'm not joking. I'm not joking. <laughs> five tips for shaving. Come up with something. That was your, that was your role. But what you should realize now is that the whole tissue of expertise in the, tissue of expertise in the world is resides on the shoulders of 24 year desperate 24 year olds inventing something. I, I imagine if we could look deeply into the worlds of medicine, pharmaceuticals and so on. Oh, religion. I mean, there's so many things from the virgin birth to the sort of uh, mosaic law where you're not supposed to mix dairy and meat. So many of these things on closer inspection are based on either laughably funny misreadings of the text where it was just a bad yes. translation and you As were you were you were like mistranslating mm -hmm. the greek or you know there's this one ran random comment in leviticus i can't remember what chapter and verse where he says you should not uh boil a a you should not boil a lamb in its mother's milk you know, which, right. you know, if you think about it, kind of makes sense because that's some pretty cold ass shit. <laughs> I mean, like, but, but, uh, don't want to do but the, the, the interpretation of this was that you shouldn't mix mi milk and the, dairy. You know, the whole world of kashrut and of, of the forbidden. Yes, human beings, and this is, I hope I say this someplace in the book. You know, it's a very strange thing about, uh, uh, writing and publishing books. When you're in the middle of doing it, you can recite the entirety of it. You know it so well and have sure. read so often 
And so it's like you're like become like a Hindu reciting the Bhagavad Gita. You could just, I know where the book is going. And then the next sentence is this and so on. You can do it in a droning monotone. But once the book is out, it's physically impossible for me to open its pages and look at it. Again. <laughs> well, a lot I, of people, it's like Nassim Nicholas Taleb says, you know, I, you know, some people write to remember, I write to forget. You, know, uh, you, yes. you write to just get it off your chest. And once it's out there, you're done with it, right? And it's, there's been at well, least, you know, you know, a couple instances on this podcast where I've been interviewing yeah. an author and she or he has uh, said, yeah, you know, well, there was this great thing. And, uh, and, but I, I edited it out of the final draft of the book. And I'll be just sitting there, and I'll be like, "No, you didn't. It's it's on page one hundred and seventy three," and 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 they kind of laugh, and it's it's because it the book is very close to me because I've just had a, a intimate right. an intimate relationship with it. I was reading it for the last week, and they haven't thought about it for for a year or two or three, you know. So it no, I totally get that. It's uh, it's, it's funny. Two things to say about that. One one um, um, somewhat deep. Nabokov, um, who hovers above this book, I hope someone invisibly, but certainly when I think about it, totally does his speak memory. Yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> it was. Okay. It, I wrote it in the in the column so okay. many times. Yeah, because I was hoping that uh, Nabokov's presence would be, as I say, wraith-like and invisible. Because to my mind, uh, speak memory um, didn't. I think he had an earlier title, conclusive evidence. Um, what is the great memoir of the kind I was trying to write here. That is to say, it's intimate, but episodic. You, you know, you don't get every, it's not. And then in 1904, we moved to Leningrad from Moscow. And it's not, uh, uh, It's uh, it has an arc. It's, it's not it, trying to be a chronicle. It's, yeah, thank it's, you. It's, thank it's you, giving not, you not, like, a, it's not giving a, a sort of a chronicle. It's giving you more kind of, and, and also it, it speak memory, you know, both, both Nabokov's memoir and yours, you both sort of have the courage to, first of all, not be chronological, but also to to bounce back and forward when yep. that's actually the proper way to tell the story. So, Exactly. And that was something that I consciously, um, I don't know if I learned it, but I certainly studied it in Nabokov. You see, you can't get the beat the graduate student out of me, no matter how hard. You can't get it out of me either. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, you don't mention no Nabokov once in the entire book, but it was very no, clearly it, there. <laughs> yes, well, I'm, yeah. I'm a little hard here because he is very strongly so. Um, anyway, the, the point I was going to make is he says someplace, but that's something I think is true, that we savor and store away certain memories that are incredibly... Uh, dear and precious to us, even if they're trivial in the great scheme of things. One of them for me, for instance, comes up in, uh, I think, the second chapter of the book, maybe the first, about um, the, the, the sights and smells of Bloomingdale's department store in the fall of 1980, when we would go back again and again to try and furnish this tiny the blue, room. Yeah. <laughs> blue room, the basement room. Um, and once having gotten it down, it it's as though it immediately drains it of all that power. And mm -hmm. now I go uh, now I go into Bloomingdale's, which I always used to savor exactly because it brought me back into that world, and it no longer does. There's something about uh, transferring or transmuting those memories into sentences that may make them communicate better, but that drains them of their uh, their potency for the uh, for the author to some degree. The other thing I was going to say, and is that. And, and oh, so this is again a somewhat circuitous digression, but actually lands on a specific point. Um, 
talking about, you know, sitting there in the blue room saying, what should I, you know, I need to have, you know, five grooming tips for, you know, the, for the October issue. The human appetite for arbitrary edicts is enormous. <laughs> exactly what a moment ago about Leviticus, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, a lot, a lot of people think that the first writing was lists. Yes. Right? Just and- lists of shit, right? Like, <laughs> that's what we do. That's why to this day, if you want to have something go viral, just say top 10, whatever. Right. Like, just yes. a, a listicle, right? Like, it, it appeals to something so deep in us. Right, like, you know, sort of like William Blake's whole thing, like, I must create a system or be enslaved by another man. So it's like we have this deep desire to be some authority's bitch. Like, it's crazy. Totally. I mean, I'm, God forgive me, I say this as a Jew, but that's the whole of Judaism was just described in your last sentence, right? We <laughs> so we buy into what are transparently, clearly, utterly arbitrary edicts in the Torah. Clearly so. And part of their appeal lies in their being absolutely arbitrary. You know, if you think about it, um, you know, and and a certain kind of Talmudic scholar tries to find a deeper moral pattern underneath all the arbitrary edicts, when the fact is their force and their power comes exactly from their being arbitrary, from their saying, in effect, what sets you apart from other people is your enslavement or your allegiance, if you prefer, to this set of rules, which you don't understand, except that it sets you apart from other people. And you're willing to risk absurdity and arbitrariness in order to be uh, faithful to the creed of your group and the creed of your cult. And that extends from grand things like Leviticus to narrow things like the October 1983 issue of GQ magazine, in which I would sit and type, shave only in the shower, um, you change your toothbrush every three days, every, every you know, or <laughs> and what's fascinating is, is that fashion magazines like fitness magazines would not exist if we didn't believe in those arbitrary edicts. Sure. I, I mean, this is the genius of like of Jordan Peterson's 12 rules for life. He totally yes. gets this, right? Yes. And everybody, academics, and everybody laugh at him. But he said, you know, last time he was in Montreal, he said, I had a long conversation with him about this. And I'm like, that was kind of genius. I said, because we're, we're, humans are addicted to lists and to like rules and stuff. And he goes, I know. He goes, if I had just written this shit, that's exactly what he said. He's like, if I had just written this shit in like a more normal, like conversational tone where it was not like, uh, you know, so sort of on high, you know, Jehovah, yeah. I'm giving you the, he goes, nobody would have read it. He's like, people want, especially in like a a period where things are very much in flux and people don't know what's up and what's down. People just want somebody to say like uh, a bunch of, you know, basically, you know, common sense stuff, but some stuff that's pretty random. They just want like, give me, give me some rules. Give me some lists to, to live by. Because, you know, like me and my friends reading your fucking articles when we were teenagers, we just wanted somebody to tell us how to be a man. I mean, we were living in yeah. like uh, Verdun, and it was a very like we were, almost all of us were in single parent households. We had no men around. My mom was on welfare till I was fourteen. We we didn't have any guys around, and the guys around were losers who were just like drunk and high all the time, and were just like you know abusive assholes. They didn't seem like visions of success that we wanted to emulate. So we would read things like GQ. <laughs> We would actually 
think like this is telling us. <laughs> and so reading reading your book, I was just laughing. I'm like, you know, the Wizard of Oz. Like, oh my god. You know, it was he, another Montreal boy who had run away two years before. Yeah, I know. It's just it it the it just makes me laugh so hard. I mean, that's but I you know, I guess uh, ultimately like that's you know, that's a lot of what growing up is is about. You uh you sort of realize that all of your idols have feet of feet of clay and that, and that's okay, because so do you, right? So also, you know, another aspect of that which you which I'm aware of now uh on occasion is that the institutions uh, that, for in my particular case, led me to New York as I found them so utterly glamorous and intriguing and dreamt of entering and even conquering, like the Museum of Modern Art or the New Yorker magazine, um, I now know quite well and did enter into, and they were remarkable and were and still are remarkable and uh, generative uh, organizations. But they finally are a collection of people like any other group of people you know, some gifted, some not so gifted, some interesting, some less so. And your notion of, uh, you know, Hogwarts, of Oz, of a place fundamentally different and more elevated than one you have known, invariably proves false. What you meet are uh, a bunch of other people. Uh, and that's, I think, uh, has a funny effect because in the end, I think I say this at the end of the book somehow, and I hope it doesn't sound uh, um, sour or entitled, but I think I say someplace at the end of the book that, uh, I, I got pretty much everything I wanted and I still feel like the same person wanting the same things again, because the things I wanted were not those actual organizations or, uh, affiliations, God help me or whatever else. They were, um, a set of ideals that existed only in my own imagination. I, my I own found that actually like that, that particular, uh, I know you're not on Facebook, but I, um, I actually sort of excerpted that that passage, which is, which is very, very, I, I mean, it's very honest and it's, it's incredibly sad and it's, I, I don't know, it's, it's very profound. It feels almost like in Ecclesiastes, right? Where like Solomon is sort of yeah. having this, he says, you know, I, I planted all these gardens and I built all these things and I, I did all these like amazing things and like, you know, all is vanity and all is, and, you know, and he goes into this sort of like, where he's just like, fuck, man, I did all this cool shit, and, I, it, and I'm still the same person, and I still feel this sort of incompleteness. And, like, you have that great line there where, you, like, you know, I've spent my whole life doing everything I wanted to do, and yet, for some reason, I, I don't feel like I did, and I, I don't know how to make sense of that, know. you know? Yeah. I mean, I think that actually sort of is, is remarkably honest and, and lovely, um, but it also just reveals something very, very essential about the human condition and about what kind of animals we are conditioned by evolution, that we we sort of have these drives, which are very important to the survival of the species. And so we we run after these things. We run after status and we run after you know all these things. But there's nothing, there's no reason why evolution would have created us to be the kind of animal that enjoys catching those things. Like it no. just, it just needs us to be the kind of fucking animal that chases after those things, you know, cause right. after that, like, you know, we've, it's, we were done. <laughs> we're done. We only have to get to the reproduction uh, age and, and then we're finished. 
Yeah, you know, well, I, more, well, I, more than reproduction, we have to sort of advance our our group's interests as well. Like, our, like the tribe. You know, we we all this ambition is ultimately for the good of our group and our kids. It's not for the good of us as individuals. And I think that's what you express right there, yes, quite exactly. quite beautifully. Is that I've done all this stuff. I've got to the top of my game. I've produced a lot of, you know, great work and, you know, advanced, you know, you, you can sort of question the ethics of various decisions, whatever, fuck you. Uh, but like, but I've, I've advanced the interests of my group. I've done what, what is, you know, to be done of a, a young warrior in this tribe and I've reproduced and I still feel this emptiness inside, you know, yeah, because none of those ambitions are made for you, for your joy as an individual. I think that's all true. I've been blessed to have, you know, mostly good things and mostly good luck. I'm aware, I was acutely aware as I wrote it, and then um, even more aware after it was published, that it's the kind of thing that can set certain critics' teeth on edge, because you seem to be denying the necessity of a moral education. You know, in this I have a an intellectual education of a kind. I, you know, learn, I learn how to be a writer, which for me is like learning to exist at all since I can't imagine living without writing. Um, but I don't become a notably better person in the course of it. I don't think, uh, and I didn't want to, because I don't think that that represents, uh, uh, lived experience at all. You know, my favorite novel in all of English is, uh, Trollope's uh, Phineas Finn, you know, that great novel about this young Irish <laughs> who comes to London and yeah. comes to Parliament and he enters into all of the, the highest possible world of political and aristocratic machinations in Britain at the very height of its empire. And then he goes back to Ireland, completely the same guy, completely unchanged. And, yeah. and then two books later, he does it all over again. And I think that's a, that's a more profound truth, exactly for the reasons you just laid out, than the the standard notion that, you know, and then I got run over by a truck, but <laughs> and then I recovered spiritually. I lost the feeling in my legs and arms, but I became a spiritually better person. Those are heroic occasions when they happen, but I don't think they typically do happen. And one of the things I wanted to uh, dramatize is how our lives are not so much reshaped by uh, tragedy and and public consciousness, but are lived against that background most of the time because they can't help but be because um, that's how we live. The AIDS epidemic, for instance, comes up as part of the background yeah. of strange, and it's something I certainly experienced very, um, uh, you know, very deeply. As you know, we're talking about the GQ and the tragic truth, which I realized when I was reassembling my memories in order to assemble this book, uh, is that. Um, most of the people who were on staff when I joined it have would died, died long ago because you know AIDS swept through that generation of gay men in New York, uh, genuinely like the plague in Camus or in uh, in Defoe. Yeah. Someone. Well, well, but, like you, like you, I went to Cape Cod for years when I was young, and I remember, you know, in the the peak peak years of the that that sort of epidemic, it was Provincetown was just a ghost town. Yeah, it was yeah. so unbelievably depressing. It was horrible. It just this vibrant, exciting place where you could see like amazing theater, and there's like all these like hot guys and all this like incredible, this just incredible energy, this like sexual energy, and this this vibrant, exciting place uh, was just like it, you know it was like going to New York after nine eleven. Like you just walk yeah. around and nobody's in the street, 
and very depressing. I mean, I, you know, and I was just, I was just really young at the time. I mean, I can't imagine, you know, actually knowing a lot of these people. That must have been really depressing. It was depressing. It was terribly depressing, and it was panic-inducing because nobody knew at that point you know, what caused it or how you'd get it and so on. And I was living at the, really at the center of it and so on. And of course the individual stories of, of, uh, of loss and of people of, you know, incredible young men of incredible charm, attractiveness, talent, ambition, who just were, you know, swept off the planet in the space of six months were uh, intolerable at the same time. And if you, when you read children's gate, you'll see this is part of it too. At the same time, the imperatives of life continue. So those disasters and tragedies act very much as the broader background against which uh, ordinary life persists. And that's a complicated truth to try and, and dramatize, uh, exactly because you don't want to seem to be callous to, them, to the background of suffering, which is, of course, not a background at all to the people who are doing the suffering. It's the only um, sensible foreground uh, that they possess. But at the same time, you want to be honest about its um, its place in one's life. It's exactly, uh, to use an odd analogy, you know, whenever you read British novels about the Blitz or set in the Blitz or memory or memoirs, is, uh, uh, you are, I, there's a wonderful kind of uh, fussy but uh, wonderful writing to Eddie Marsh, British uh, uh, literateur who I love to read. And he's going to see Ivor Novello uh, musical comedies against the background of the Blitz. But the background of the Blitz was the death by immolation of tens of thousands of people. Keeping those two things, background and foreground, foreground, which becomes background, background, which becomes foreground, in some kind of recognizably human harmony is one of the uh, one of the traps of um, of memoir writing. In Nabokov, you know, to come back to that uh, magnificent example, um, Nabokov is writing about the single most disruptive time in uh, uh, Russian history. He's writing about the, the revolution of 1905 and then the revolution of 1917. His own father is assassinated as a liberal, to come back to Thousand Sanities, um, and so on. Um, and yet Nabokov is writing, above all, the memoir of an Esti. And there are people who say, I think, crazily, um, showing a fundamental insensitivity to literature and what it does. How can he write? about the foreground of his aesthetic uh, sensations against the larger background of world tragedy. And it seems to me that's exactly the only way to write about your aesthetic sensations is against that background. That's the normal human dialogue. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I, I have to think there's sort of like, a, like a, a spectrum where on one end I would place like John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, mm -hmm. where you just see all of life as a set of, you know, almost like a, an absurd Horatio Alger, you know, myth, right? Where all of life is just a set of sort of examples or some sort of Oprah book of the month club book, like where everything's like a lesson. And here's what this relationship taught me. And here's what working at the museum taught me. And here's what working at GQ taught And like there's, which just becomes so annoyingly Protestant in the worst way. And, and it's also, it's all a lie, of course, because like we know that that's just a reconstruction and that's not actually how the shit went down. But, but, uh, but then the other end of the spectrum, which I find equally gross is, uh, you know, what I, what I would refer to as the sort of the life is beautiful kind of way that, yeah. Oh, you know, like uh, on the, on the background of the Holocaust, we were just like, 
I mean, I, I, to this day, I think Life is Beautiful is the most disgusting movie I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Like, and I'm a it's pretty, a, I'm a pretty kind of light person. I, I don't, I don't take life terribly seriously. But I think having like a comedy thing on the background of the Holocaust is just fucking gross. <laughs> like, I mean, it's just, so I would say, you know, within those, those two poles, I think the truth of life is, is, is so somewhere in the middle of those polls and which is exactly where you pitch your story. Right. It's, well, but you agree with the, you, you've got to be the only person I've ever mentioned that to who's agreed with me. They all look at me like I just said, you know, fuck Jesus or something like, so you agree like that life is beautiful is, yeah. is garbage. Oh, it's horrible. It's horrible. I, it's well-intended, I think. Yes. But, oh, of course. Um, of course. Um, but it's, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I think it's, I think it's, it's, it's awful. But, you know, it's one of the um, the tensions and one of the traps, as I said a moment ago, in writing any kind of memoir is that what is the background of your experience and AIDS was the background of my experience, even though I, my heart was shriveled by seeing uh, people I cared about a great deal uh, pass away, die. But what's the background of your experience is the foreground of someone else's experience. What's the foreground of your experience is the background of other people's experiences and trying to weave back and forth between uh, two, you know, screens on the proscenium is, is always hugely difficult, but you want to be truthful. You know, it was even more, uh, urgent for me when, uh, not to change the subject from one of my books to another, but in children's gate, which is very much a nine 11 book to try and write honestly about that because there was huge social coercion still going on when I published that book in 2006 to uh, register uh, an absolute and tragic disruption, uh, which left on one side before it a frivolous, decadent, materialist society, and on the other, post 9 11, uh, re regimented, uh, uh, militarized, and uh, uh, purpose seeking, an idea, a newly idealistic. So, you maybe I'm sure you remember all that. Um, oh, irony is over crap that circulated around yeah the yeah wipe, wipe that smirk off your poem and all that shit yeah and i my actual experience of it was and i was downtown on the morning of 9-11 i was there i mean not truly there but watching there um my experience was that it was nothing like that that it was far more complex that the the uh insistence of life on being lived the insistence that we all feel to live our hopes and not merely our fears was just as powerful. I have a line in uh, in Children's Gate um, th- that I like, and I actually made the subject of a song in the musical I wrote that was in some vague way, some very vague way, inspired by Children's Gate, which is that um, uh, uh, th- that uh, we see. I'm going to forget. I'm going to forget exactly how I put it, but um, uh, we s- the darkness is necessary in order for us. Uh, to see the light that we only can, it comes back to our friend Leonard Cohen, who we were discussing last time. I don't have the quote in front of me. I'm kicking myself. There's uh, a crack in everything. It. That's how the light gets in. That's how the light gets in. My, my version of that. Um, hold on one second here. Hold on. I, I will, uh, I've got to, I will not, uh, I will not leave myself struggling for words. I love it when people me. go and look for citations mm-hmm. and I'll tell you why. 
it, it tells me that they take the interview seriously. No, I'm serious. <laughs> I, I no, I, I really believe that. Like, if you're willing to stop and pause and think for 20 seconds about what you wanted to say or go look for a citation, that yeah. uh, that tells me you're taking this seriously rather than just you know bullshitting at a Showing, at, at a museum. <laughs> well, here's what I wrote. Um, these, the stories in that book, are stories of happiness and shadow, the shadow of a darkening time and the shadow of human mortality both. I feel the shadows, as we all do, and cringe maybe even more than most. But I try to remember that darkness is a subject too and need not always be too sad a one. Oh, shadow, wow. Shadows are all we have to show us the shapes that light can make. And if I have to have one aphorism, you know, meme its way through time, on my behalf, John, it would be that last. That's sentence. beautiful. Shadows. That's like that's Decameron worthy. That's like Cervantes. That's like that's really the shapes that light can make. And that actually, he said, and after this, we, the wonderful composer David Shire and I, turned into a song um, uh, called "Shadows and Light" for our our show. And uh, so, but that's not in Stranger's Gate, as it happens. So I'm I'm you I, should I you should put that. I mean, have you ever thought this? Is just a random thought, but. Sort of a you know, sort of a five year plan, but not in the Stalin sense. Um, the like five ten years from now, have you ever thought of uh, maybe maybe sort of coming out with a version of the two of them together, like a companion? I, where you know, it's funny you say that because it is one of my uh, notions is to turn. It's actually three books. It's Strangers Gate, and then Paris to the Moon, which intercedes between them, and then Children's Gate. Strangers Gate is about getting started in New York. Paris, the moon is about leaving New York for uh, a long and extended uh, romantic and child rearing holiday in Paris. And then uh, Children's Gate is about coming back in the shadow of 9-11. And yes, I have. And it's one of the things that I would like to do, in part because I would, with an author's natural and probably self-destructive, but in any case, irrevocable taste for revision, I would like to revise them uh, as well. I think that in... Uh, I, you know, I often worry when I'm writing, uh, when I'm turning memoir into book, that um, the balance between intimate experience and larger experience has to be found so that in uh, Stranger's Gate, and I, uh, you know, I'll be pleased if you tell me I'm wrong, but I fear that I'm right. I loaded a lot of stuff about art theory in the 1980s and the development of New York art in the 1980s into the book just because I felt that a uh, tale largely set in Soho at the height of its um, uh, um, of its of its uh, presence of its omnipresence as a village of art. That if I didn't write a, about how art developed in those years, I was cheating my subject and cheating my reader. I'm now inclined to think that I probably put too much of that stuff. No, in no, 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 no. Honestly, <laughs> like, really, that would yeah. that would be a really big mistake. That would be oh, a okay. really don't take any of that out. And I'll tell you why because. Not only is that stuff inherently interesting and fun, it actually is sort of foreshadowed in, in chapters that come before it in ways that are probably not apparent to you as an author because you don't realize how much you are one thing and that you're actually very integrated and, and like all of these things have gone into making you who you are. So you don't realize how much in previous chapters you're foreshadowing that chapter and how much chapters that come after that, especially, you know, the... The one you know talking about your mentor Dick and stuff like that, they, it's it sort of kind of encapsulates so many things about the time and about your life, and um, 
So you you may read it over now with some distance from the book, and you think, well, I'm just talking about art and art theory and what was going on in in that period. But the very fact that you are sort of tied between your mentor Dick and you know and his sort of aesthetic and your and it kind of like your parents' aesthetic and stuff like that and Robert Hughes. Which, by the way, that just blew my mind because I, you know, another thing like me, the connections between me and you indirectly are insane. Like I read your articles, your bullshit articles in GQ, and and yeah. lived by them with my friends. But like, I was obsessed with Robert Hughes. I I thought he he sort of spoke with this authoritative voice about art. And, you know, saying, like, you know, it's like this and it's like this. And, like, you know, this very kind of old school way of, like, seeing things. And which I really appreciated because everybody else seemed to be, like, uh, I don't know. Like, uh, and uh, and just to the way you talk about how you're sort of tied between the old and the new. And so kind of comfortable with the new, but you didn't really know how to, you know, but still a part of the old. I think that's central to the memoir's message because that that's central to your life that's central to the 80s it's this kind of in between period right like an inter- well, oh is it to, to broaden your point which is extremely generous i will say that in my experience whenever authors go back to revise their work famous cases henry james right revising his novels they almost invariably make them worse and you're right for the very reason that you described that we as authors are holes in ways, not holes within W. We're also holes in the in the fabric of consciousness. I dare say, but we're W H O L E S as well in ways that we can't possibly be um, adequately aware of. And when we try to excise the part that strikes us as less appealing, we're actually just um, slashing away at our own skins in ugly in in ugly ways. Bob Hughes, and I hope I convey this in the book, was someone who I deeply loved. Oh my God, a, that completely comes through. But was also someone who, in many respects, you know, and, and it's, it's, it, it was, for me, one of the things that I wanted to dramatize in this book. We meet our heroes, and inevitably, our heroes turn out to have, if not feet of clay, then, uh, then uh, uh, nerves of spun taffy. Bob was a man of enormous um, intellectual power and authority. He also was a man of enormous vulnerability and pain. Uh, he, he, uh, 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 was uh, a man who had amorous relations. A man really had, you know, really troubled uh, marriages and really troubled love, lo- uh, really troubled love life. And being aware of that, being aware of the immensity of pain that someone of enormous power uh, can, can can contain, was hugely moving to me. And in that section, what I wanted to do, I don't know if it's at all clear was to juxtapose and in a certain sense contrast the characters of Robert Hughes and Jeff Koons, who mm-hmm. was in the, my, um, my familiars in that period. Uh, I, one of the few moments of prescience I've ever had as a, God help me, cultural critic was that I spotted very early on how important Koons was going to be. I think it was his second show in 1986 or so, which included the famous Silver Bunny. And I wrote about that yeah, this was at a time when there were lots of, they call them neo-geo artists, lots of artists of that particular kind appropriating objects, shopping as making and so on. And I saw that Coons had some weird sliver of ice in his eye, which was the sliver of ice of, of our time. Anyway, 
and then I got to know Jeff as I as I write in the book. And Jeff turned out to be not at all a slick, smooth, Baudrillard reading um, intellectual operator, but a glorious American nut who meant everything. Yeah, like almost almost like an idiot savant. Like he sort yeah. of like he he does totally theoretically and, and culturally unsophisticated, doesn't really understand what he's doing. But does it, but knows how to do it. But does it better than anybody else. And does it better than anybody else. And that was what was fast. So one of my favorite moments in the book, uh, utterly true, is when uh, Martha, my wife, and I were sitting at dinner with Jeff and other... Oh and my other, God, I love that scene. <laughs> and Jeff turned to Martha and said, what is irony? <laughs> no, I mean these things. Everybody always says to my work is Phil Lucky. What is irony? And he meant it from the bottom of his heart. It was <laughs> and Martha said to him, Well, Jeff, you would know better than I would, but he was genuinely bewildered. And it was his not actually knowing what irony was that enabled him to be the greatest ironic artist. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I, I laughed so hard in that scene. I mean, I laughed at a lot of parts of this book, but that particular scene I immediately uh I thought of there's that wonderful moment, and did did you ever get into that show Breaking Bad? Yes, my son, my son Luke was a huge fan. I've not gone deep into it, but I sort of know well, the. There, there's this wonderful scene where you know, I mean, you, the basic premise of the show, right, is this high school chemistry teacher who sort of uh, finds out he's dying of cancer and decides to sort of start making crystal meth because he has no savings whatsoever and uh, he wants to leave a bunch of money for his his wife and his kid. Because his his son is special needs, and you know he uh, he he needs to make a lot of money really fast before he dies, and so he starts uh, and he so he gets into drug dealing with uh, a former student of his who was just a complete fuck up, like a high school dropout who's a drug dealer, but he he sucks at making drugs. So anyway, so he he's actually a kind of a, a genius chemist, like way beyond what you would expect of a, a high school chemist. He's he's a really, really gifted, brilliant chemist. So he trains his um his sort of his partner and apprentice in how to how to make like really, really amazing, amazing crystal meth. But the thing is, is he doesn't know any of the theory behind it. He he doesn't have a PhD in chemistry. He doesn't know anything about the history of chemistry. He doesn't know the chemical names for anything. He can't sort of talk in an intelligent way about any of the chemistry. But by doing it so many times, he just has all the right instincts. He just has... Uh... And so at one point, they get in bed with the Mexican cartel, and they bring his his assistant partner down to Mexico and because the Mexican cartels want to be able to make crystal meth that is as good, good as, as, his. as his, right? And so, and they're really pissed off. And, and the the Mexican chemists who have like PhDs from Harvard and from the Sorbonne and from like top universities in the world, they are just disgusted that this like little like kid who looks like Eminem is like there and he's going to tell them how to make good crystal meth. And they're like, you know, PhD chemists and stuff like that. And so he's like sort of cooking crystal meth with them. And he asks like, oh yeah, well now I need this. And they're like, do you mean, you know, and they say the chemical name for it and stuff. He goes, I don't know, the the the, the stuff in the blue can. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is exactly. He, he just, he doesn't, he doesn't know 
the most basic things about chemistry, and yet the best that these Mexican cartel cooks can get is uh, is crystal meth that is like like eighty four percent pure. That's like their best effort. And this right. this kid who doesn't know any of the theory or the history behind any of this, he is so ignorant in terms of talking to these people about it, but yet he cooks it up and on his first batch gets crystal meth that's 94% pure. And that's and they're just and they're looking like, you know, exactly the way, you know, Martha was looking at Jeff Koons like, holy shit. <laughs> like, how are you doing this shit? <laughs> But you know, oh, I guess there true. is there is just like you know there, some people just are. I mean, we're all products of our time, but I think some people are products of time in the sense that that people are possessed by like a demon or something. Like they just, you know, they just almost like it. It just the times kind of flow through them in this weird way. Yes, and that's and it tends to be visual artists who are those people, you know, and thinks of of Andy Warhol, for instance, as, as a similar kind in a, in a very different uh, register of uh, Jackson Pollock, for instance. And that's part of one of the things that we love so deeply, I think, about the visual arts that no other art, no other art form possesses is exactly that quality of the kind of pure that, you know, in the Breaking Bad terms, you know, the purest crystal method ever made. You know, if you're interested in the French 19th century, you can read Zola and you can read uh, uh, Balzac, but you look at one Manet and you get it all. And just as it's all still there and potent, the aestheticism, the social unease, the uh, the gourmandise and the totality of it, the dandyism. Uh, so yeah, you know. But what I just to come back to the to to the 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 thing about uh, Hughes and Coons is I did want to get the sense as well that though Bob was this very formidable and to uh, many young artists, uh, frightening figure. And I have friends among the artists who still hate his memory because he treated them, uh, with, uh, a disdain that was not always earned, but nonetheless, he actually represented a sensibility that was passing out of the world, a particular kind of romantic expressionist, in some ways, humanist sensibility, the thought that art was the, Visual arts were the, the the record and the repository of some fundamental struggle in your soul, as per Rembrandt and Goya and Francis Bacon and um, Lucian Freud and and who else? And against that was Jeff, who had intuited exactly in the the in along the path that you described, that who had intuited that uh, art rested in its imperviousness, that art was part of the spectacle of of uh, late 20th century life and resided there, was lodged there uh, for good or ill. Yeah, well, say, I, I think, you know, I think of the, you know, the great Renaissance historian, as he says in, you know, the civilization of the Renaissance in Italy, you know, when he, he talks about his his amazing treatment of Luther, you know, I, I just, I, I thought of Luther in, in that book when I was hearing you talk about Hughes, that he says, you know, Lu- you could have only had a Protestant Reformation among with somebody who was far enough to ro- far away away from Rome that you could actually believe all the pieties and just and kind of absorb them in this rote kind of heartfelt sense, like with no sense of of, of irony or or kind of suspicion or 
you know, being you're far enough from the centers of cultural power that you actually drink all the Kool-Aid and you believe all the bullshit completely. Yeah. Whereas like, and it's it only somebody who's coming from Australia could be that unbelievably pious you know, in the yes. way that Hughes was. Like only and that that's his his point, right? Like in the civilization of the Renaissance and Italy, that only somebody who was, you know, way up in Germany could have been that unbelievably pious about about the church and about his teachings and be like so much, you know, in a sense, almost like like a child, you know, like like really sort of that, naive in this like Spiel, Spielberg true. sense, right? And and yeah. so when he goes to Rome, he's like, oh my God, like I can't believe they're doing all this stuff. Jesus Christ. And you like, feel that when you're when you're like listening to you remember his his great NPR series based on his book, Art in America? Sure. Like he has that kind of Lutheran like sense of just Looking at this modern art, he's just—he's like he wants to be Jesus, like you know, turning over the you know the money changers in the temple. Like he's just—he's horrified that that this is so human. Whereas you know, if you grow up in Montreal, yeah, I mean, you're away from a lot of the culture, but you're close enough to know that a bunch of it—that it's just people. Sure. New York is around the corner. It's, well, I think what you, you just, know people are you know you know it's just people. They're people that have more money and are kind of cooler than you, but they're just people. They're just people. What you just said is profoundly true, and it's profoundly true on a couple of scores. One is the thing about Australia and about how having been raised in Australia, where there was essentially no modern art to look at, aside from a few um, local heroes like Sidney Nolan and so on, minor figures. Um, meant that you exactly as you described, you vastly overestimate the purity of the church, just mm-hmm. like your example. If you're growing up in Rome, you know that the church is corrupt and it doesn't bother you. It's just the church. It's like knowing that you know, it's true office, too, actually. You believe in it, but you also represent it. You also recognize it's, it's frailties. I wrote that once about one of my literary heroes is, you know, GK Chesterton, you know, devout Catholic. You can only be a devout Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> and a Semite, sadly, but you can only be, um, a, that kind of, devout and a Catholic if you didn't grow up Catholic and you're coming upon it late. Then it's astounding. If you grow up Catholic, the Catholic church is a little like Americans. You, it's admirable that they deliver all the mail, but what else would they be doing? And to, <laughs> what, what does they say? Like, uh, you know, converts are always more Catholic than the Pope? Totally. Far more. But to confirm your po- point, John, an, uh, Hughes's exact contemporary and frenemy was Clive James, uh, <laughs> the Australian uh, literary critic and poet who went to London instead of going to New York and had exactly, I mean, exactly the same kind of authority and the same kind of bemused innocence, as you described it, when it came to his examination of English literature. He worshipped the stuff uh, in a way that his English contemporaries couldn't. They knew, um, they knew it was a kind of emanation from the, from the ground. It was not an astonishing... Um, phantasmagoria uh, that you had to travel to get to. So Bob and Clive, both of whom I was lucky enough to know quite well, and both of whom uh, were these uncanny, I used to tease them both by saying, I I think you guys are competitive because there's only room for one Antipodean Womo Universalis on the planet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, one of the things that, you know, the the short story, I guess it's almost into novella territory, but um, Tony O'Kroger by Thomas Mann, 
There's, sure. there's a, a wonderful, wonderful scene which you'll remember because it's probably you know one of the most memorable scenes in the in the the story, where he he's writing this letter, and he says you know he's he's sort of left his kind of provincial area and gone and hung out with the cool kids you know the Bohemians and stuff like that and and all that stuff and and he says you know I I I've come to a position now where like. I understand your critique, you know, and your satire and stuff like that of the places that you came from and the people that you've dealt with and stuff like that. I get that. And I, I see the truth in your, but your critique is, is always kind of mean and it's, there's something, you know, something mean about it. And so what I want to do is I want to sort of tell the truth and I want my truth to be like arrows, but I always want the arrows to be covered with the balm of love. And I always want there to be something like a sweetness and a compassion to my critique of people's foibles. And that absolutely comes through in At the Stranger's Gate again and again and again when you talk about people, even when you talk about yourself. I mean, there's a there's a sort of, um, there's kind of a fashion in a lot of memoirs where not only are people incredibly hard on other people, and, and very kind of unforgiving and, and harsh. They're also incredibly harsh on themselves, on their former selves, right? Sure. And, uh, yeah. and you don't do either of that. You sort of talk about kind of ways in which you were, you know, sort of a douche. And But but you're like, yeah, whatever, you know, it's, it's human. <laughs> like, and when you talk about people, including Robert Hughes, uh, and, and all those people, it's always the, the sort of the, the arrow of truth is always... Covered with the balm of love. Well, that's a beautiful expression, one I shall copy out and etch. The risk of that, of course, as you know, is is sentimentality, forgiving people, including yourself, too soon, and so on. The hardest chapter of that kind for me to write, for that reason, was the one about Richard Avedon. Oh, God. Because whereas Bob Ooh. Hughes, a good <laughs> friend and kind of, um, not a mentor in any real sense, but certainly a model, and Jeff Koons was a friend and a contemporary of a, an eccentric kind. Dick Avedon was like a substitute father for me and for uh, Martha and for the two of us as a couple. Curiously, because we both had very loving relations with our, with our own parents, but he had that kind of role in my life. And I wanted him to be the presiding kind of tutelary Gandalf of the entire book and of the whole story. And uh, that was tricky to write because... Uh, Avedon was one of the most uh, 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 beautifully charismatic people of his time, but at the same time, he was flawed, uh, and at the same time, well, of course he was flawed, we all are, but um, so that my, and my uh, 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 attraction to him, which was enormous, and his act of adoption, which was incredibly generous, and and teaching, I was laughing the other day because I was reading a biography, a kind of, what do they call those things? A kind of oral history, an oral biography. Lots of people talking about Mike Nichols, the great film director and theater director and comedian. And he was a very close friend of, of Avedon's, of Dick's as well. And he says, is quoted in saying someplace in the book, oh, Dick taught me how to live rich. And I laughed out loud because Dick taught us how to live rich. How to, you know, he says, Dick taught me how to be rich. Dick taught us how to be rich. Just didn't teach me ever how to make any money. So, <laughs> in other words, he taught you how to be in debt all the time. Yes. Yeah, and how I to live beyond your, yeah. I, I, I read that chapter and, you know, 
it the parallel for me is, uh, and he'll probably listen to this and and be sort of shocked. But my my good friend uh, Fred Fred Bodie, who's a historian, retired historian from Concordia University, he was my honors thesis advisor, and we became uh, very good friends. He and his wife Janice, and he's been a mentor to me for in a very very big way for you know, the last 25 years of my life. Um, and he's he's the godfather to both of my children and, you know, a really intense fixture in my life. But the way that you wrote about Dick, it just, that was like one of the, cha- one of the, cha- probably of all the chapters in the book, that was the one that hit closest to home because I have the same kind of deeply complicated relationship with Fred that you have with Dick, mm-hmm. where I love him so much, and he's taught me so much about how the way the world works and how to sort of, you know, become who I am at 45. But at the same time, so much of who I am is in kind of defining against things that he told me and kind of like shit-talking him in my head often <laughs> as a way of defining how I want to do things. It's just... It's, exactly- yeah, it's weird. That's- relationship i wanted to <clears throat> to get down on paper and i wanted to be both uh you know talk about the model i wanted to be infinitely tender to someone who not only i loved in the way we love our 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 siblings and our parents and so on but who delighted me there was never a time when i wasn't when the phone rang and it was dick that i wasn't delighted to pick it up you know that it wasn't a a, a charge of, of not just of joy but of fun fun mm-hmm. is a terribly underrated word. Dick used to love that word. And he would always quote, and it was actually very telling, the line in um, The Member of the Wedding when um, John Henry, remember the little boy in Member of the Wedding, says to Frankie, yeah, yeah. let's have fun. Frankie, let's us have fun. And that's not actually the line. When I was writing a memorial to Dick, I went to look it up. and she, He actually says, let's us have a good time. Let's us have a good time. But Dick used to say, let's us have fun. And fun, I think, is a terribly underrated word in that way. But... <laughs> It's so uh, weird because when you recounted that scene, I remembered yeah. it as fun. Yeah, exactly. That's really weird. It should be fun. <laughs> it should be fun. But in any case, he um, Dick brought that that into my life, and I was incredibly uh, not just grateful, but he also brought and I tried to describe it in, in describing the uh, the the room in which he worked, this amazing studio up uh, on Seventy Fifth Street uh, that was covered. You know, he had a I'm a doomed to be a literary type. I live through words and sentences and so on. Not, there's no so on to add to that. I live through words and sentences. But Dick lived through images, and he had this omnivorous appetite for images of significant action. And he just filled the walls of his uh, his studio, which were you know soft pin-up walls, with images of action. And they were a revelation to me, the whole vision of the world, you know, that, that basically showed that, you know, a, you know, a, a base dealer leaping over a second baseman lived in exactly the same world. You know, Robert Kappa's partisan being uh, being shot down. Um, not to say that they were both aestheticized, but that, that they lived in this kind of existential theater of of action and meaning and death and joy and sex and life. And that was uh, uh, you know life giving to me as a as a as a young man. Um, but also, as I try to explain in the book, you know, there's something doomed about it's just as you were talking about your own relationship. There's something inherently doomed about the relationship of mentors and proteges, you know, that you 
uh, you rebel against that role. And the best mentor and the most devoted mentor in the world will always end, not so much by disappointing the protege, but by not possibly being the 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 model that you want him to be, because it's not he's not in the business of being a model. He's in the business of being himself or herself. As I mentioned in the book, and not to drop a name, but just because it was interesting to me, but we had a, a very dear woman friend who's a, a my wife's closest friend who developed something like the same relationship with Nora Ephron, uh, mm-hmm. the the writer and filmmaker. And Nora was a wonderful teacher and mentor, but inevitably you could not be Nora. You could not become Nora any more than I could become Dick Avenant. And so exactly as you describe, even as you're drawn into that orbit and that pool of life, you become someone else. There's a passage in the book, and now I will sound terribly disingenuous and I don't mean to, but I can't remember the exact sentences any longer, but I tried to describe it as the relationship between the moon and the boats you know, the the boats float on the tide. And if they realized that the moon was responsible for the tide, they would blame the moon, but they don't. So they blame the water instead. And that's, I think, some version of the uh, relationship of, of mentors and protégés. Anyway, that's what yeah, I'm no, to- I I completely remember the passage you're talking about because it's it's like underlined and, you know, outlined. It's, it's in my copy. I'm looking at it right now. It's like uh, the moon tugs on the waters and the little boats struggle with the tides even as they admire the shining silver object above their heads. If they knew that the moon made the tides, the boats would be angry at the moon, but they blame the water or each other, and the moon shines on. It's like, yeah. it's like so beautiful. It's like one of my favorite passages in the whole book. That's an, I will say I like that. When you read, read that, I genuinely am not... Uh, I'm in total egomaniac about my writing in the sense that I think about, I, I think about it all the time. But I'm not an Which art- means you're a writer. <laughs> That's yeah. sort of, those but are synonyms. I, <laughs> most so. of the time when I hear it read back to me, I wince and say, oh, it could have been better. I could have, that could have, even when I was reading to you the thing from Children's Gate, I realized that I, that I had made a terrible mistake in the verb. I say, I feel the shadow. I don't feel shadows. You see shadows or sense shadows. Yeah. And so I wish I could go back and, and rewrite it. But um, yeah, I, you know, I think that that's, uh, that that's true. So I wanted, um, the book to be, uh, uh, a tribute to Dick and a tribute to those relations. And of course, one of the risks of writing about such things, John, just as there's a risk in writing about your wife is that you can put yourself or seem to put yourself in a somewhat sycophantic role, you know, as though you're looking for a mentor. The truth was that in my relationship with Dick, curiously, those roles were in for large part reversed because my ambitions were in the literary world where Dick Dick's writ as a fashion photographer and a portrait photographer did not run very large. And um, as it happened, his ambitions later became to be in the New Yorker. And one of the things, one of the ways I was able to, I don't want to say repay because that makes it sound like an active accountancy. One of the ways in which I was able to, uh, um, return or replenish our friendship was to bring him to the New Yorker, which it was, he spent the last five years of his, of his working life of his life working for the New Yorker and doing some of the most beautiful work of his life. So that was, uh, uh, that was, uh, that was wonderful. We took our last, I don't know. I'm, you know, I forgive me for seeming so inexpert on my own writing, but we took a last uh, plane ride together just by chance. I was going out to San Francisco to do a talk, at a museum and Dick was going out to do a, in 2004 to do a, a series of uh, 
portraits for a special issue on democracy in America. Yeah, for the and New he America. said, we, we provide for our families. Yes, those were our ladies. Yes, and we sat together. He was up in first class, but he kept coming back to the economy. <laughs> it, drove the, it drove the flight attendants crazy, you know, wandering back and forth post 9-11. And when he was a young man, everybody did. And flying, it was like being on the train. You walked back and forth. Couldn't do it after 9-11. I wanted to capture some of that. Anyway, and he said to me, he talked to me with enormous affection as we provide for our families. And it was ironic because I had come to him with these enormous aesthetic ambitions. And what he was telling me finally was, you're a good Jewish father. You work. You're on this plane to go make some money for your family. I'm on to go make some money for mine. We could have been two guys in the Shmata trade. You yeah, know, the you're, you're a real mensch there, Adam. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're doing the right thing. And I thought, huh, that's what it is. That's the totality of it. But uh, as I get older, I, you know, I see it is. We provide for our families. It was such a funny thing for a man of such elegance and existential refinement to, to land on in our last conversation. Uh, and, uh, uh, and I, you know, when I, when I will always remember. Yeah. At the, and he died like it was quite sudden, right? It was, yeah, uh, died, I think three, two or three days later he died. He was in, uh, uh, we were in San Francisco together a little, a little bit, uh, uh, in the next couple of days, then he went off to San Antonio and he was taking a photograph and he slipped and fell. And, uh, you know, it's one of the terrible things one learns about, um, the elderly is, you know, if you're on a blood thinner to prevent you from getting a stroke, if you have any kind of, uh, uh, uh hemorrhage in your brain, it becomes essentially instantly fatal because you lost the capacity to clot it. We've lost a couple of friends that way. Um, uh, I, I hate when people say what I'm about to say. But uh, it was a sort of blessing in as much as he was a man of limitless uh, appetite and uh, unequaled energy. And for him to have been forced to live diminished uh, would have been a living death for him. You know, he it, not, not a big secret, but he actually was one of those people who stowed away barbiturates um, throughout his life in order to have enough to do away with himself if he ever found himself in that in that circumstance. So uh, I I wish that he had lived another decade. I, I totally I totally totally respect that. In fact, I was a big supporter when they were <clears throat> having the debate here in Canada about whether you know sort of having like uh, right. physician assisted suicide. Like I, I just think it's, there's a word for it in it, Canada, name for it, not assisted suicide. It's called something else now, right? Yeah, uh, they they I mean they they have various names, but like I I think that's just a really, really nice, compassionate uh, thing to have available for people because, you know, not everybody, you know, some people really sort of cling to to life and, and are able to find, and I suspect that when, when my time comes that I, I suspect that I'll probably be in, probably be in this category because I, I'm, uh, I can find pleasure in, in really, really, which is not to say that I'm like any kind of voluntary simplicity hippie or anything like that. Like I, I like nice things and I like tasty things and beautiful things, but, but I can at the same time, I have this sort of ascetic streak where I can, I can actually find a great deal of pleasure in, in, you know, living in a blue room, you know, sort of like a, yeah. a very simple, I can also find pleasure there. So I suspect that when I'm in diminished circumstances that I will still be able to find a lot of joy in life and a lot of pleasure in life so much so that that you know living is is fine right 
uh, you know, well, not as great as when I was 25, but fine, right? But I know like a lot of really tremendous, wonderful people that I love who they're just not like that. Like I just cannot picture them, you know, being okay with like, you know, people that are like really physical or really, you know, sort of, I just don't, who, who can't go for a hike, you know, out in the mountains or can't, you know, just, I, I can see how it would just be for some people so soul crushing yep. to be like that. And I think it's just so awesome that we just let them like, you know, exit stage left. I, I think that's true. You know, I guess we're always constantly, and probably this is a good if gloomy note to end on, constantly renegotiating our deal with God about such things. As long as I, you know, you say to yourself, you know, a 10 year, when you're 50, you say, as long as I can read, talk to my kids and, you know, uh, go for walks, I'll be okay. And then by the time you're 60, you say, if I can read and talk to my kids, the walks is not essential, right? And then, <laughs> well, someone can read to me, right? I mean, you know, that'll be all right in that way. But for me, and I don't mean this, um, quite as sententiously as it's going to sound, but as long as I can write, I can breathe. You know, I, I, the one thing I find as I get older is that I like writing more. I, you know, I, I, uh, I've been doing it my whole life, but it, for me now, when I, you know, that moment when I snap open my computer in the morning and, uh, have my coffee, it, I never understand, and this may be incredibly hateful and annoying and will get me even more uh, nasty online criticism than I already endure, but I never understand writers who say, oh, it's a you know nightmare and I sharpen pencils or nobody sharpens pencils anymore, but I can't do it. And all I, you know, all I dream about is being over, you know, you haven't, not writing, you have written and all that. Genuinely don't understand that. I, I uh, nothing gives me more pleasure than someone saying, can you do 500 words on, uh, I just did them before you and I spoke. Um, George Steiner, the literary critic, died. And um, so they threw that at me. And I love having a, uh, a small literary task like that to do after I've done my other work. So I know I sound insufferable, but the truth is for me, uh, and, and just to round it off in terms of the book we've been talking about, that's kind of the point of, of, um, of Stranger's Gate. You know, it's about a guy who has, um, lots of ambitions and dreams of a somewhat glamorous life with his, with his, uh, uh beautiful, a wife in New York and ascending to the heights and then discovers that what he really likes to do is to put sentences in order. And that's basically the story I wanted to tell. Yeah, no, it, and you, you tell it very well. I mean, I, I guess the, the final question I wanted to ask you before we, uh, we say our, say our departs, um, is, um, one question that, that remained sort of hanging for me at the end of the book. And I was wondering what you, you sort of, you allude to it in various places. Um, but so much, one of the main undercurrents of the book is just this raw kind of ambition and, you know, moving to the big city and trying to make it with the big dogs and like being, you know, brought into the inner sanctum and, and constantly trying to just this burning ambition to like experience and learn and succeed and do all the stuff. And, 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 you know, <laughs> giving your wife a rare steak and her declining it yeah. and this being somehow emblematic of, you know, something else, you know, red and bloody that's being denied. Yeah. <laughs> like this, there's this kind of throbbing kind of 
like testosterone energy that pumps through this like erect <laughs> thing throughout the book, right? And I'm wondering, uh, because I'm at the beginning of this process at 45 mm-hmm. and you're you're farther farther along on it. I'm wondering 40. when uh, when when that all that kind of testosterone and that drive and that ambition when it starts to, you know, it, it does shut off, but like when it starts to just sort of calm down a bit so that it's just not so raging and overwhelming almost. And I'm not saying that to, you know, in any way deplore that. I think that, I think that's beautiful. That's, that, that's life. I mean, uh, but when, when that starts to calm down a bit, if you've been somebody like you, um, who's so driven by that kind of ambition and who, and who seems to have like a, like a fucking double portion of it or triple portion, of, you know, graduating high school at fucking 14. Like, you know, d- sort of, if you've got like a double and triple portion of this kind of just manly testosterone, rah, you know, like when that starts to dial down, um, do you feel, do you feel empty? Do you feel aimless? Do you feel, uh, you know, like like Chiron at the beginning of Plato's Republic, where he asks him, "Oh, do you miss Eros?" And he goes, "Oh, fuck that tyrant." Um, you know, like, do you feel like like you're more relaxed? Do you feel like like this is? Oh, I'm glad to be off that roller coaster. Like, what what's it like? It, it hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened. Yet. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that because that raw fuel you're still a throbbing cock of ambition like uh (laughs) it gets more narrowly channeled you know i don't i I basically never leave the room that i'm speaking to you from i'm in here you know six hours a day ambition for your family in all seriousness ambition for your kids that's one of the positive civilizing things about having children yes is that you be ambitious it get, for gets, it gets you out of yourself i know i've found that too yeah. with my two kids it, it gets you out of your own your own kind of ego and you kind of extend your ego boundaries to these other right. people but, right which is it, salutary healthy <laughs> it doesn't the illusion is that it introduces you to selflessness it doesn't really oh no no they're just an extension of yourself right you yeah. become self i never had that illusion to start off with so i didn't need <laughs> to be illusioned i i mean my my wife you know, was really when we were first together, she was really into the idea of adopting kids. And uh, and I liked the idea in theory, but when I really sort of like searched my heart rather than just my, like my ethics and my mind and my principles, I was like, uh, no, I want people that are like us. <laughs> Which is to say, I want extensions of my ego. <laughs> and, and, also, I will say to our on our behalf, we want to see the unique chromosomal of mix. Course, of course, of course. What happens when the avocados meet the hot peppers and the peculiar personal guacamole? Of, yeah, yeah. Of, no, no. I don't see them as like. I see them as definitely separate souls with their own kind of thing going on. But it delights me that I see my wife in them, and it delights me that I see myself in them, and that I see my mother in them. And that I see I was my to... my you know my cousins, brothers, sisters, cousins. You know, I see my grandparents in them. That is delightful. That is the weirdest thing is when you see extended family. You sort of expect though it's ever delightful. You know what you say, my God, he's his mother's son. But then when you say, oh, and he's enormously like my brother, and you know what, I can actually see Martha's uh, father in him as well. Here, his his great uncle. So in any case, yes, I think that's all true. But 
so I hope that it gets, um, you know, extended into others as you have kids and you become more civilized. I hope, and I hope this doesn't sound too pious, but that, that even someone as, you know, narrowly solipsistic as myself becomes somewhat more civilized as well in seeing the, uh, the world outside. It's, you know, there's, it's not an accident that the, my most recent book was a book of politics and political values. Uh, and I write now all the time about uh, incarceration and gun control and so on, uh, because those are things, you know, at some point you look up from your own lap and you see uh, other sufferings outside yourself. And I think that um, that's, you know, part of being, uh, of growing up. But in terms of the what you aptly described is this fundamental fuel composed of equal parts, sterone, champagne, vodka, and the sheer gas of, of ambition. Um, so far, that has not receded in my soul. And Please promise me-, me that when it does a little bit, you don't become one of those jubus who suddenly moves to New New Mexico and is sick of New York because, you know, like Johnson, I believe, you know, if you're tired of London, you're tired of life. And if you're tired of, you're tired of New York, you're, you're not looking for spirituality. You're tired of life. You're uh, the only thing that might happen might intercede is I would never leave off living in the city with Martha. And I sometimes play with the fantasy that we'll go back to Paris where we lived for several years and become one of those irascible old couples, extremely well dressed. <laughs> I love those couples. That, and we don't d- discard, especially in this tormented political time, the possibility of coming back to Montreal, where we grew up in enormous uh, happiness and pleasure and becoming, and, you know, like Leonard Cohen buying a loft in the old city and um, spending our, you know, our days uh, skating in the Vieux-Port and all of that. So you might see us at Beauties some morning. That would be <laughs> wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and especially since I know you you have a cold right now. And uh, hasn't occluded my expression too much. Is beauty still in business? Of course. Oh, (laughs) of course it is. Yeah. Oh, good. Good. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's totally still in business. The uh, and it was you know I mean actually last time I was there it was sad because like I remember exactly where Leonard Cohen would sit when he was there you know and he would. he he's just he was always around. I mean, like when I was growing up, it was uh, you'd see him, um, Trudeau, Pierre Trudeau would be like out on the town, just hanging out like by himself or with friends without any RCMP, any protection whatsoever. Uh, same thing, Brian Maroney. You would see him out like drinking with his friends, like uh, no protection, no bodyguards, no like it just you. It just sort of this incredibly civilized wonderful place where you could just see all of these you know really kind of you know amazing people and they were, they were just people and they didn't have to worry about anybody coming and fucking with them you know like they just would hang bless, out on well, god bless canada though the subject of strangers gate is leaving the provincial capital for the cosmopolitan capital leaving the small city for the big one there's i hope a very loving portrait of montreal oh my I god i that i is- posted your your portrait of montreal I posted that on a bunch of sites, like Montreal right. sites on Facebook. Last oh, I last I checked, each of them had been shared, you know, hundreds and hundreds of times. Like people just were okay. dying. They 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 loved your portrayal of the the sweetness of Montreal in that era, and it really resonated with a lot of people. They uh, 
they really Del- liked it. But. Delighted to hear it. I keep a very, um, I, and it sounds corny to say war- warm spot, but uh, Montreal still means a great deal to me. And um, uh, if only the Habs would pull into a playoff spot, oh, I would. God. Thank <laughs> 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 you, John. Yeah. Talk. All right. Always- Take care. Take care. Thank you again. Bye-bye. Bye.